Now, we come to the great and terrible one. This one is not named. So we're just going to call it the terrible beast. This is verse 7. After these things I was watching, and the night visions, and a fourth beast appeared. Now once again, notice that Daniel begins his vision with, I was watching. Then here he mentions again, I was watching. This phrase, I was watching, appearing here signals that this is the important one. That the other ones are just side, they're, they're, they're just opening acts for the terrible beast, so to speak. And that this is where God is really going to focus his attention on. And the fact that God spends more time explaining this one, which the explanation, in my opinion, doesn't really help us that much more. And the fact that this is the one that disturbs Daniel the most and he thinks about the most, all emphasizes the fact that this is where the focus of the chapter is when it comes to the beast. So after these things, I was watching the night visions and a fourth beast appeared, one dreadful, terrible, and very strong. that had two large rows of iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and, and anything that was left, it trampled with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that came before it and it had ten horns. As I was contemplating the horns, another horn, a small one, came up between them, and the three of the former horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. This horn had eyes resembling human eyes and a mouth speaking arrogant things. The Roman view says that this is the Roman Empire. But that doesn't work. First, this beast is going to describe as having horns. The same thing is described in the beast, the goat in chapter 8 as having horns, and everybody agrees that the goat is the Greek empire. They say that the Greek view cannot explain what the ten horns represent, okay? Because it goes on and it says this, As I was contemplating, or sorry, trampled feet was different from all the beasts, and it came before it had ten horns. So what are these ten horns? The Roman view says the Greek view has no good explanation for what the ten horns are. That's not a good argument for your position. You can't say, well, of course it's the Roman Empire because you don't have a good explanation for what the ten horns are for the Greek Empire. That's not a good argument. Because here's the thing. Even though they have explanations for what the ten horns are, there's, there's like nobody who agrees on it. There are like at least 10 to 20 different views on what these 10 horns are. So the fact that nobody in the Roman Empire view camp can actually agree on what the 10 horns are means that there's nothing that clearly reveals itself in history to explain that this is it. Now, that doesn't mean that this is definitely not the Roman Empire, but it means that when you argue that you don't have a good explanation and yet they can't agree on their explanation, that's a flat argument. That's a flat argument. It's like when people are like, well, if your God's so loving and powerful, then why is there so much evil in the world? And the first thing I ask them is, well, then why do you think there's so much evil in the world? And they're like, uh, and they don't have answers. And I tell them, like, you might not like the Bible's answer, but at least the Bible has an answer. But they don't want you to know that. They want you to defend yourself. They don't want you to reveal their ignorance. That's not a valid argument. Here's the problem, too, with this being the Roman Empire. Two major things. First, this beast is described as an unstoppable juggernaut of a machine that nothing could stand in its way. And it crushed and destroyed everything. All this language of terrible, destructive, trampling everything, devouring anything, nothing could stand in its way, defeats, um, communicates an undefeatable kind of picture. That this person is, this beast is a reigning champion, undefeated. That's not true of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire lost many battles. 
and it eked its way into existence. Yes, the Roman Empire ended up being a very powerful, very strong empire, but it grew into power over hundreds of years, and it lost many, many, many battles. It was one of the only empires that did not have rapid growth. Did not have rapid growth. Not only that, the Roman Empire was not different from all the other beasts. The Assyrians were an eastern empire that controlled the Tigris and Euphrates. The Persians were an eastern empire that controlled the, 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 Persian, or the Tigris in the Middle East. The Babylonians were eastern empire. The Medians were an eastern empire. They were all very similar to each other. The Greeks were totally different. They came from the west, not the east. And they conquered and bridged the gap between the East and the West. And their culture, their language, their worldview, the part of the world that they came from, and how they built their empire, and what their empire consisted of, was completely different than any empire that would ever existed before them. Most empires were just basically taking the land of the previous empire. The Greeks took more, and they came from a different place. The Romans, you can't say that they were unique in any kind of way at all. If there was one word to describe the Romans, it's plagiarism. They literally copied the gods of all the Greeks before them and just renamed them. Zeus became Jupiter and like Hera. I mean, they just copied the names. They even took the Greek government and they improved on it. The one thing the Romans did is they just improved on things. They did government better than the Greeks, but the model of republic and democracy actually came from the Greeks. Their culture, they adopted the same language as the Greeks, the same religion as the Greeks, the same cultural outlook as the Greeks. The one thing that probably made them unique was that they were a melting pot of more cultures than ever existed before. But you can't say that they were different in any way because they literally copied everything from everybody else. They copied the Egyptians, they copied the Babylonians, they copied the, the Zodiac from the Babylonians, the, the gods from... I mean, there was nothing unique about them in any kind of a way. So that doesn't fit at all. This is then the Greek view. This Greek empire fits well, because like I already described, Alexander III was invincible. Absolutely invincible. He never lost any battles. He conquered stealth, and he ruled over everyone. He was absolutely different compared to anything that had come before him. There was nothing that was like the Greek Empire in any way at all. And when we go through um, the intertestamental period, I mean, the Greeks had a completely different worldview than most people around them. They had conquered in a different way. They had a different language. Everything was about them was completely different. So these two things seem to fit the Greek Empire well. And like I already said, the fact that every other chapter ends with the Greek Empire suggests that this is it. And the fact that we're told that Christ or the rock would come at the end of these empires fits the Greek Empire because after the Greek Empire fell, Christ came. But the Christ came in the very beginning, if not maybe middle of the Roman Empire. And it actually wasn't until after Christ that the Roman Empire started actually reaching some of its greatest heights of power and dominance. During Christ, it was still building itself. So let's talk about the horns. The horns is the difficult thing. 
No matter what view you take, the horns are hard to figure out. There is no real clear, like, oh my gosh, that is it. Like, for me, I really feel like everything just, like, like puzzle pieces that are just fitting perfectly into the puzzle when you start understanding the Greek Empire view. But the horns are a little harder. Every scholar believes that the horns represent a second stage in the empire. That the beast represents one stage and the horns represent a second stage. This becomes clear by the fact that there's ten horns and then three are ripped out and one raises up and the, that communicates a, a, a stages, a stages in power. If you go from zero horns to ten horns to three horns to one dominant horn, we have multiple stages that are going on here. Now, some people have suggested that the horns represent the Seleucids. Now, we briefly talked about this, but we'll go into this in a lot more detail when we get to chapter 11 and 12, because it's all 11 and 12 is about, is the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. The Seleucids are dominating um, this area right here. Okay, they dominate the orange. Then eventually, later, they will conquer this part and end up dominating Israel as well. And the Seleucids are the main focus. Everything, like I told you, everything is getting more and more specific. So in chapter 7, we're talking about all the empires. In chapter 8, we're only interested in the, well, God's only interested in the Persians and the Greeks. And then in chapter 9, he's only interested in the Greeks. And then chapter 11, he's only interested in Seleucids. So not only does he get more specific and more detailed, he, gets, he begins to zero in more and more on the Greeks and Seleucids. Why are the Seleucids so important? Because the Seleucids are the ones that are going to have a more direct ruling impact over Israel. Remember, the whole point of this is not that God's like, not just that he's like, hey, I know the future, and I'll lay it all out for you. Because if that was true, then why doesn't he go into the Roman Empire? And then after, and the Germanians, and the Vistagos, and the Anglos, and the Ottomans, and the Mongols, like, why does he just keep going if he's just about impressing us or even just, a, and I don't mean like impressing like somebody trying to get attention, but impressing us as I actually do the know the future, you can trust me. The main focus here is Israel. All this has to do with Israel. And God is trying to reveal to them what is going to happen to them so that they can learn to trust him. And the, the nation that had the greatest impact on Israel was the Seleucids. And we'll talk about that in more detail because there's a man by the name of Antiochus IV who is just going to oppress, dominate, abuse the Israelites in a way that nobody ever has. Yes, the, the Syrians massacred them, but they, they deserved it. It was judgment. Yes, the Babylonians carried into exile, but overall the Babylonians treated them pretty well and allowed them to have their own private property and live pretty well. The Persians treated them really well and let them go back. The Greeks really weren't interested in Israel because the Greeks were too busy conquering the world. But when Alexander III died and the empire got split, then Ptolemy and Seleucid began to fight for control of Israel, and that affected them. And then when the Seleucids took control, they zero in on the Israelites and just ruin their lives in a lot of way. And so that's the main goal. I think that that itself, that everything keeps zeroing in more and more and more on the Seleucids because they're the ones who are going to have the most direct impact on Israel out of all the empires, suggests that this is the real focus. This is the real point. 
And so often we get so caught up in trying to identify these beasts that we're missing the point of why is God showing us these beasts? Because these beasts are not going to act like the image of God with Israel when the sluices come. They're going to act like beasts. And so the horns, so many people said, therefore the horns represent the different kings of the Seleucid Empire. And every king was either named Seleucid or Seleucus or Antiochus. Literally. For like over a couple hundred years, it was Seleucus or Antiochus. Seleucus or Antiochus. That's, they all were called that. Some people have said that these are the ten kings that came into power before Antiochus IV. And the three horns that are not mentioned are the three brothers that tried to take power but Antiochus IV pushed out of power and became king. But that doesn't fit. Here's why. That seems to be squeezing it too much. And likewise, we're told that the ten horns are existing all at the same time. And the three horns out of the ten are already established. Then they get ripped out. That does not make sense with succession. You can't say this. If that was true, we would like see a whack-a-mole kind of thing, like a horn come up and one go down, another one come up, another horn come up and come down. And then you would see three horns trying to come up and then bam, somebody whacks it down. We don't see that in the vision. So the fact that they all exist at the same time and then three are ripped out suggests that these are, that's a three are conquered or three are removed out of a coexistence of ten. So successions of emperors does not fit this vision. This is where John Walton comes in. John Walton is like, I got a scholar crush on him. Like, this guy knows his stuff. And it's like, he is so brilliant. And almost everything he says is right. And I know that that's not true because all men fail and all women fail and that kind of stuff. Some scholars have called, nicknamed him Waltian theology because he's just like, this guy... He's one of these guys that just has his finger on the pulse of the ancient world in a way that nobody has except for like two other people who have existed. And he presents the idea that this represents the independent states of coalitions that the Greeks um, had conquered, or the Seleucids, sorry. That the Seleucids, that the father, Antiochus III, he was, he was the, the, the guy with the stick, Okay. Antiochus III was a guy who basically dominated the Ptolemies. And he expanded the Seleucid Empire more than any party before him had. And he conquered, 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 conquered. He was the dad who worked really hard, built his kingdom, and dominated everybody. Antiochus IV was the spoiled little brat who just tortured everybody because he had free time and he was bored. And so Antiochus III conquered... And he brought several city-states in this, uh, like, south of the Black Sea, north of the Tigris River, under his control. And that was the Ptolemaic Egypt, Seleucia, Macedonia, Pergama, Pontus, Bithynia, Cappadocia, Armenia, Parthia, and Bacteria. These were multiple places that you can see all throughout here. So not only starting up by the Black Sea, you can see Parthia here, Bacteria here. These were dominant states that he ended up conquering and taking over. So that actually fits because all these city states 
were major providences in his empire coexisting at the same time. But they were also constantly trying to break away. They were constantly trying to break away in the process. The three uprooted horns, therefore, would represent Cappadocia, Armenia, and Parthia. And these were three independent states that actually tried to break away. And they broke away, and he pulled them back again, and then they broke away. And so that makes sense that if the beast is the foundation of the empire, these ten horns represent city-states that are constantly trying to break away all the time from his power. And then three of them successfully uprooted themselves out of the Seleucid Empire and then went off and did its own thing. The horns, the beast, represents the Greek Empire, but the horns represent the Seleucid Empire, which was made up these ten providences. And three of them end up breaking away and moving. And that fits much better. The little horn... And this is the real focus. The little horn is the Antichrist. Everybody agrees that it's the Antichrist. I know that we have been, had it ingrained into our head that the Antichrist is some future thing yet to come. And I'm not saying necessarily that's not true, and that's for Revelation study. But John, in 1 John chapter 4, makes it very clear that there have been many Antichrists, and there are many yet to come. And Paul even says there are many antichrists among us. And so the Bible has never really singled out a solo antichrist that will come one day. What it's talked about is there are many antichrists. Now, of course, Christ doesn't exist during the time of Daniel, so we would call this the anti-God horn, the anti-Yahweh horn. And this is Antiochus IV. And the fact that it rises up in the midst of the three horns being broke out, it might actually represent the family. Not necessarily one specific person, but the family. And so that the third, the eleventh horn growing up represents the family rising up more and more and more power, specifically Antiochus the third. And that this power rises up, and then when it begins to speak and boast, that would be Antiochus the fourth. And that kind of fits, because family lines are built over time. And it's not uncommon for something to represent a family, like the shoot that grows out of the stump of Israel represents the line of David. And in order to get to Jesus, we had to go through all these descendants. So the shoot begins to grow, but we're not going to see the shoot fully grown until Jesus comes along, and that's like 700 years later. So that little vine represents a line. And so now we see not only a shoot representing a specific line of kings and Judah growing up out of the stump of Israel over time. Now we have a beast in correlation to the stump. And out of it is a horn that's growing up over time representing a line. And the line reaches its peak under Antiochus IV because Antiochus IV was so narcissistic. And he really declared himself God. And so most likely it represents this. Antiochus IV, when he rose up, we'll go into him a lot more detail when we get to intertestamental history. He rose up into power and he actually minted coins where he put Antiochus Epiphanes, son of God, on the coins. Epiphanes means the divine one. And he forced the Jews to use the coin in their trading. Now, this is not good because, one, the, the Jews believe you shall have no other gods before me. 
that's a coin with a god on it. And you're not allowed to have any graven images of anything, and it's a coin with a graven image on it. So they really didn't like this. And not only that, he went and he put an idol of Zeus in the temple, and he sacrificed a pig to it. And then he went from village to village to village in Israel, not he personally, but he sent his soldiers and representatives, forcing every leader of every Israelite village to sacrifice pigs to Zeus, or he would slaughter them all. And then he desecrated the temple, and then he forbid all Jewish festivals from happening. He refused them to do any sacrifices to their own god, and he really just did a number on them that nobody ever did. And then he sold the high priesthood out to the highest bidder, and then it ended up being a non-Levitical person, and the way that they got it was by just assassinating each other to get there. So he ruined the priesthood too by selling it out for money. And this is a horrible time period. This is considered one of the darkest time periods in Israelite history. And when Judas cleansed the temple, an Israelite, and he drove the, the, the idol out and the Seleucids out and all that kind of stuff, that basically became the basis for Hanukkah. Hanukkah celebrates Judas taking back the temple from the Seleucids. And we know that Hanukkah is like the biggest holiday in all of Judaism, other than Passover. And so the Passover exodus out of Egypt and the cleansing of the temple under Judas Maccabee is considered the two greatest events of God's deliverance of his people in all of Israelite history because how horrible their slavery was under Pharaoh and how horrible their oppression and persecution was under Antiochus IV. And so if there's ever a, hor- a man that matches up with this horn that talks and boasts, it's Antiochus IV. Now the Roman view says this is Titus because if this is the Roman view, you have to then claim that the little horn is an antichrist that comes after the Greek empire or the anti-God figure. And this anti-God figure, if the Roman, the beast is the Roman Empire, the horns have to represent, and they say the horns represent kings, which I already talked about, that doesn't really make sense because they all coexist at the same time. But the other thing is, later we're going to be told in chapter 9 that this little horn is going to desecrate the temple and desecrate Israel. Titus never really did that. Titus did go into the temple and say, I am God, but he never really desecrated it. And the same with Antiochus IV did and desecrated the Jews. He just kind of pridefully stood in there for a couple of seconds and said, I am God, and then walked out and then destroyed the temple. But he never really defiled it. And so he doesn't seem to match. And likewise, he's never referred to. The, every scholar believes that the little horn on the he-goat in chapter 8 is Antiochus. And everybody agrees that Antiochus is the main focus at the end of chapter 12. So everything is climaxing on Antiochus IV in chapter 12. And he is specifically pointed out in the goat in chapter 8. So does it make sense that like, well, this horn is Titus? That doesn't seem to fit. And like I said, when Antiochus and the Greeks keep being the focus every single chapter over and over and over again, it doesn't make sense to randomly throw Rome into two chapters and squeeze it in. And Rome never really desecrated Israel like Antiochus did. And I think that's the main focus. The main focus here when we get to chapter 9 is that a figure is coming. All this is leading Antiochus. A figure is coming that is going to 
desecrate you and dominate you and make you suffer and persecute you in a way that you have never been. But I will deliver you. I will deliver you. And this will be a proof that the world needs a Savior, that the world has completely gone mad, and that leaders are not trustworthy. And this is what they can ultimately become, and this is what they'll do. I think the other focus here is not only that, but the reason Antiochus IV is being zeroed on is, is the Jews don't deserve Antiochus IV and what he does. The Jews de- deserved Assyria because they had sinned, and God said, I'm bringing the Assyrians. The Jews deserved Babylon because he said, I'm bringing the Babylonians. But at the end of the Babylonian Empire, God said, your sins have been dealt with. You've paid. Now, he didn't mean paid like in your sins are paid for and you get to go to heaven. But he meant that the specific sins that you committed and that you should be punished for has been fulfilled. And God says there's no more need for punishment anymore. So under Cyrus II, he let them go. And they went back to their land. And then largely speaking, yes, bad things happened to them here and there and there, and they were kind of cheated and mistreated a little bit here and there and that kind of stuff. But, oh, but those were small little incidences that really only affected a few people. But when Antiochus IV comes, he takes, this is persecution. This is specific attacking them. In fact, when he gets defeated by Rome, he is so angry that he goes home like some spoiled little brat that didn't get the candy that he wanted. And when you fear your parents and you don't have the bravery to yell and scream at them for punishing you and disciplining you, what do you usually do? You take your anger out on your your dog or your brothers and sisters and you just pommel them into the ground or you tear holes in your wall, right? And when kids go that extreme, you're like, okay, we need counseling. They do this over and over. I'm not saying every time your kids just kick something or whatever, but when they just like pound on it and pound on it and pound on it and they never seem satisfied, that's what he did to the Jews. He took it all on them in this sick, twisted, um, psychopathic kind of a way. And I think what God is saying is, that wasn't a part of your judgment. That's not a part of what you deserved. And so, but it's coming. It's coming. But I need you to know that I know it's coming. And I need you to know that it will come to an end. Because later he's going to specifically say it's only going to last for 2,300 days. And there is an end to it. And I will deliver you. But it's coming. Because if you're going to go through that, it's really going to make you feel like, wow, God, this is messed up and harsh. And this isn't part of our judgment. And you said it was done over. And you didn't see this coming. And how do we know that it will happen? Because one, we've seen that with people we know. And two, we saw it with the Jewish nation under the Holocaust. And I think what God is saying is that this is coming. I know it's coming. It will only last for 2,300 days, which is three and a half years. And then it will be over with. Why God allows it to happen? Well, that's the bigger question of everything, of why God allows it to happen. But what he's telling them is, this isn't part of your punishment. You don't deserve it, but it won't last forever. I saw it coming, and I'm going to take care of you. And I think that's why God is zeroing so much on this. But he's also showing them this. God is not making Antiochus IV happen. But God allowed Antiochus IV come. I mean, he, we know this. I mean, God can stop anything that he wants at any time. So if it happens, he allows it. 
but he always uses it for our good. And that's what 1 Peter is all about. And what will he use this for? Many, many, many different reasons. Because there's always millions of reasons with God. He's always like killing 40 million birds with one stone. And the reality is, though, don't put your hope in these empires. It's going to be a long time. You're going to go 400 years and you're not going to see a prophet. You thought exile was going to be over in 70 years. And it's actually going to be more like 400 years. And that's what we're going to get in chapter 9. Daniel's like, is the exile going to be over soon? It's like 70 years is almost over. And God's answer is, yeah, it's more like 490-something years. And you're like, oh. You know how depressing that would be? <laughs> like, um, I paid my taxes. Yay, I'm all done. And the government comes the next day. Yeah, you owe $40 million. I mean, that would just be defeating. And so I think what God is showing them is, you're going to really feel like God has stepped away from you during this time period. And you're going to be really tempted to put your hope and trust in the powers that you can see. But don't do that. Because at any second, they can turn on you and skin you alive and trample you in the ground. Don't be tempted to put your hope in this. Now, how do I know? You're like, why would Israel would ever do that? Because they did. They put their hope in the Seleucids to save them. And then they got sold out. And then some of the leaders put their hope in the Seleucids to get power. And they got sold out. And then they're going to do it again when the Romans come. They're going to be like, oh, the Seleucids are horrible. Hey, Pompey, save us. And then he's going to like dominate them, destroy them. And they're just going to keep doing this over and over again. And they're going to do this so often that when Jesus shows up, they're like, no, we're not going to put our hope and trust in you. And I think God is warning them, like, don't do this. These are not images of God. These are beasts. These are beasts. And you were created to rule over the serpent and the beasts, not follow them and surrender to them. And I think that's the main focus of everything that Daniel is seeing in these visions here. These two things. These two things are the main focus that is going on. 